Do you wish you knew more about precision teaching and standard acceleration? Do you have the heart to chart? During today's meal, I talked to a phenomenal BCBA who's making precision teaching and the SCC exciting, digestible, and ultimately more accessible. Which reminds me of today's behavior bite. Beach miss. Every year, my family tries to figure out how to get together for the holidays when we're all in three different states. In an effort to make it more accessible for everyone, I presented the idea of Christmas in July. Instead of traveling in the winter, everyone treks back to our hometown in Maine and celebrates during the summer. The idea took off like a rocket and was quickly coined Beachmas by one of my brother's kids. It was super successful and we're already making plans for next year. It's quite amazing what can happen when you make things more accessible and obtainable for others. Welcome to Behavior Bites with Rosie Eats, where we share a virtual meal with behavior analysts, psychologists, educators, and other helping professionals. Building a community can be hard when you're always pouring into others. So pull up a chair, grab your favorite food, and let's dig in. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Rosie, and I'm so excited to introduce my dinner partner. Today's guest is a behavior scientist, a precision teacher, a PhD student at Penn State, and someone we could all listen to for hours. It's Jared Van. Hi, Jared. Hi, Rosie. How are you? I love the little dancing you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love your intro. It was like, oh, that's me. That's so cool. It's a great intro. <laughs> well, you introduce yourself in all your videos, and so I was taking pieces from that. I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do your tagline, the one where you say, like, I'm Black and here to educate. And I'm like, that's just mm -hmm. so much better when it comes from your mouth and not mine. <laughs> <laughs> but hi, are you ready to sit down for our dinner? Absolutely. So our first course is our amuse-bouche, which is a chef's whim. So for today's chef's whim, in a fun turn of events, we are recording on September 8th, which has been crowned Black Male BCBA Day. So first, thank you so much for spending your time dining with us. Absolutely. I love it. And second, I wanted to ask you, what has been some of your favorite successes as a Black man in both ABA and academia? Well, in ABA, what I really enjoy is I've seen an increase in number of people that look like me, which is incredible. And um, I've really had the opportunity to have so many different experiences working in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, and then moving to L.A., working there. Uh, I got to see so many different cultures and um, and use the science to help so many different people in so many different ways. It was really awesome. And people, you know, really learned a lot from from me because, you know, I come with my own culture. Everybody comes with their own culture. And when we, you know, put it all together, we can make a nice gumbo, which is my favorite <laughs> food. So I um, I really think that that's really awesome. And like seeing these kids that I've worked with grow and their behavior change, and then being able to interact with the environment so much better, and then so much happier, like they're happier uh, after, and, and their parents are happier, and it's just a better situation. That is what I do this for, and that's that. And then when it comes to academia, I really notice, you know, the higher you go, the fewer people that look like you, and I'm sure as a woman, you probably experience something similar. So, um, 
being in these spaces, I'm noticing because of my culture, different holes in um, in academia, in the science that a lot of people haven't noticed. So I enjoy being able to fill them with my knowledge, with my information and being able to find gaps in the science and help us grow as a science. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I will not, I know you reference me like as a woman, but I will set it straight that I by far <laughs> am still well represented in in all parts, especially as a white woman. But yeah, I, I like kind of your spin on it of like you found the holes and you're excited to fill them with your experience, your culture, uh, your knowledge and everything, because um, that could and is kind of a barrier too. What are some of the barriers that you've noticed? One, there are very few people who look like me who have the same culture and have the same dialect. And uh, one of the things is a lot of times people assume that if you're speaking something like African-American vernacular English, AAVE, then you're less intelligent. So that's something that I've had to navigate um, kind of code switching and uh, especially in academia. When you get up to that PhD level, it's like, you know, oh, you're supposed to act like this. And I was even told by a person at my uh, in my school, like, oh, you have to code switch. Do you know what code switching is? And I'm like, you're telling me, <laughs> do I know what code switching is? And I, I was just like, OK, this is going to be uh, a relationship that might be tumultuous, but you have to navigate these with with care. And I, I've really had a really awesome experience kind of figuring that out. I mean, the way that I conceptualize it is everybody behaves in ways that their environment has selected. So if we use that kind of behavior kindness to understand that, okay, they're they're not just trying to be mean, but their Mm -hmm. environmental history has accumulated so that they behave like this. So we all come in with that. And then I can kind of come in with what I have. And I often end up showing them something that they've never seen. So like using our science to shape their behavior. Yeah. And and also to conceptualize why their behavior is the way that it is, because a lot of times people can become very frustrated because of the way people behave. And it's like, well, let's think about it scientifically. The environment selects behavior. So therefore, they're acting like this because of some environmental contingencies that shake this up. So, you know, it kind of calms me down and lets me interact with the world in a in a, in a better way, in a, in a calmer way to analyze and assess it in a behavior scientific manner. I'm just over here, like, cheesing because, like, <laughs> it's just it's such a nice way to look at it. And I think more of us have to kind of think in that aspect of you know, most humans aren't just trying to be mean and evil. It's just the environment that they've been around, the people that they've been around, how their behavior has been shaped over years. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people in academia are well into their 40s, 50s, 60s. And so we're talking about, you know, 50 years of a learning history, reinforcement history, punishment history. Absolutely. And I think that to see where I've come from, like, I started playing Xbox when Xbox Live came out and everybody had a mic. And at a young age, I was thrown a lot of racist sentiments and Mm. it was really difficult for me. So 
Now, <laughs> if I see something online or whatever, it's going to really not hit me as deeply because I've kind of experienced that in that realm. So over time, by learning the science and understanding why we behave the way we do and how we behave, it's made me better understand where people get that behavior. I mean, I don't have to like it anymore, but I still kind of can come from an area where before I was like super frustrated and like, why are people like this? But now I'm like, I understand. I don't like mm. it, but I understand it. And I can kind of maneuver the situation with the science really well. So. What could your professional colleagues do to support and amplify your professional and lived experience to ensure our clients and families or other people in academia benefit from your teachings and your overall experience? That's a great question. <laughs> I think that one of the things that we can do is we can try to identify when we're using the science of behavior. Are we shaping behavior to be what we think is normal, which tends to be close in proximity to whiteness? Or are we shaping behavior so the individual can better interact with their environment? There's a big difference between the two. And I can give mm -hmm. you an example. Um, you know, when we're learning how to say words and speak and talk, if I understand what you're saying and you're not using, you know, proper English, and I'm using air quotes, um, then it doesn't necessarily need to be shaped up into those proper English if the environment can still go on, you know? So when we when we look at how we apply our science to the individuals we serve, we really got to think in that cultural context, is this culturally significant? And a lot of times uh, people don't recognize it because all they know is all that they've been around. So when they're around something new, it seems different and they might think that different is wrong or bad and it's not necessarily so. That's a really good point, especially the equating whiteness with normal. Yeah, <laughs> it could branch off in so many different ways right now, but I'm going to leave it because that's that was a really good answer and I don't want to add any of my stuff. <laughs> it's a really tough question. I appreciate that one. <laughs> Okay, let's jump into our appetizers. So first off, how did you get into behavior analysis? Okay, so we have to go back to 2014 when I graduated with a psychology degree. And I didn't know what I can do with a psychology degree. So I looked on um, Indeed and apparently I could be this thing called a behavior therapist. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And then I also got a job at H&M. So I was working two jobs. Uh, and I moved back home <laughs> with my parents because, you know, broke, uh, went to University of the Pacific. So private school debt, uh, I can't afford to live in California. Um, so I started working with the kids and I realized we get to go to recess. And we were playing and having fun. And then we went back into the, to work on schoolwork. And, you know, I was helping students, you know, better engage with their environment. And I was really good with it. And I'm really good at working with kids, apparently. And I really enjoyed it. I loved it. And then I had to go back to H&M. And they put me on the cast register one day, and I had no idea what I was doing. I messed everything up. People came back with their receipts like, this is wrong, and I hated it. So I was like, I quit. I didn't even leave, give two weeks. I was like, like, are you coming in today? And I was like, I'm sorry. No, this isn't for me. I'm going to go full-time with being a behavior therapist. And I was good at it, and I recognized that I could be better if I learned more. Mm -hmm. So I went to try to 
get my master's in behavior analysis, applied behavior analysis, and learn more. I like the H&M story. That's funny. That's, <laughs> I feel like a lot of us can relate to that. Like, well, one, we can all relate to how we kind of fell into ABA. I found it through Craigslist. You found it through Indeed. You know, it's just somewhere online. It's floating around and we just happen to like catch it. Uh, but then the flip side of having any other job afterwards, you're just like, no, like, this is what I was made for. This is what I'm going to do. Exactly. So branching off of that, how did you go from becoming a behavior therapist and then going back to school into now precision teaching? Okay, so I was in school one day and we were in our master's program in L.A. at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology at the L.A. campus. And one of my professors was, we were talking about precision teaching, and we had learned about it because we had to do these things called staff meds, say all every minute, every day shuffle, we use flashcards, and you basically learn how to say the terms of, you know, behavior analytic terms. One day, one of my professors was talking about how we used to work at this place called Morningside Academy, and they used precision teaching. And he said, I could tell that a kid was getting sick by looking at their chart. And I was like, oh, and he's like, he's like, oh, oh, yep, you're starting to dip. You're probably about to get sick. And then like that, they would be out because they were sick. And I was like, mm-hmm. you can predict whether or not someone's going to be sick via the sensitivity of the chart. Are you serious right now? So I was like, we gotta look into. I gotta look into this. You know, I just became curious. And you know, uh, B.F. Skinner said, you know, if you find something interesting, drop everything else and study it. So I did. And I started learning about it and asking as much as I could about it. And um, I like read everything I could. And I got this book by this guy named Dr. Richard Cabina, the precision teaching book. And he was coming to my school to talk at one day. And I asked my uh, supervisor, like, hey, he's coming. Can I get the day off, please, to go to this, uh, the two days off to go to this workshop? And I was working with the client that was really like high intensity and she was like you know what jared you're really good at what you do really appreciate you and this could help you a lot and you know you could bring it to us and show us about precision teaching so yeah and i met him and he talked and i learned more and i was hooked it's just such an interesting topic and i really love how now as you learn uh you are now sharing on social media so more people can learn about it and hear about it. And they're, the power of social media, and if listeners don't know this, uh, Jared was on the panel with me at BABA for discussing social media in behavior analysis. And so there are definitely a lot of negatives of social media, but I think one of the positives is it's a great way to disseminate information quickly to a lot of people. And we have to make it digestible. So quick, like 60 seconds information. And what I have found is a lot of more people are talking about the standard acceleration chart and precision teaching and charting. Uh, and that anytime that comes up, your name comes up now too. <laughs> and I get really excited because I'm like, I know him. Yeah. Yeah. You sh- definitely should talk to Jared. Like he will he will help you. I know like Mick Solomon, she talks about you all the time and you guys are going to be doing a CU. It's coming out before this podcast is coming out, but it'll be on demand. Yeah. And it's just so, it's so exciting. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
one of the, th the big things about behavior analysis is we've always been really bad at advertising ourselves. So doing the same thing is not going to get us to where we want to go. One of the tenets of precision teaching is if it isn't working, stop and change. And I've noticed a gap in uh, social media. There's nothing, there's very little uh, about precision teaching. At least there was nothing before I started. Nothing that I could find. Other than the Daily BA, he had a lot of stuff, good stuff on YouTube. But other than that, there was nothing on Instagram or TikTok. So I was like, I'm going to put this information out there and let people know about this amazing thing that I know about. And hopefully they'll care. Uh, and I know that a lot of the more seasoned individuals in behavior science, precision teaching, academia, they kind of sometimes scoff at social media. They're like, oh, you need to be published, you need to do all this things. But like, you know, when we look at response costs, how much is it to go read a whole article, first of all, find it, access it and read it versus watch, you know, a 15 second to three minute video? What's more accessible? And I mm -hmm. think making the response cost low and the accessibility high is paramount to disseminating information such as behavior science and precision teaching. Mm -hmm. Very good point. Very good point. Uh, especially the accessibility part of it, because so many things are behind a paywall. You can access some through like the BACB's portal, but even that, it's not everything. And sometimes that glitches and doesn't work either and then again back to the response cost or the response effort that it's like okay well I'm just going to go back to scrolling instead of like looking up this research article and then they come across your post and they're like oh wait this is what I wanted to learn about let me watch Jared's videos and learn a little bit more and then maybe reach out to him and then maybe he can just send me the article you know yeah, I mean, it's just an appetizer. And then they can get the full meal in the main course by reading the article. Nice. Love a good wraparound. <laughs> Let's get to our second appetizer. Uh, when was a time that you failed? And what did you learn from that experience? I fail all the time. And we learn from failure. You know, either we're right or we learn. So, you know, when you're raising your hand to answer a question in class, either you're right or you learn. I think one of my biggest and best failures was I was working with a lot of kids and what I would get a lot is, oh, they only work well with youth. One teacher was like, yeah, thank you for being here this year. He literally would not be able to come to the school if you were not his behavior therapist. And I've got that a lot. I used to be so excited about that and happy about that. But then as I learned about behavior science, I realized I'm not generalizing their behavior across other individuals, across different mm -hmm. environments. It's all, I have all the stimulus control and the environment doesn't have any of it. And that is a big failure on my part because I'm not servicing my clients well enough to make them successful if I'm not around, which I think is one of our biggest things is independence. So I wasn't, I wasn't f facilitating that independence uh, I was just making the days easier for, mm -hmm. for people when I was around, especially when I had high incident, high, highly aggressive clients. So when I learned more about the science, I learned about this thing that I thought was something to brag about was actually one of my biggest failures. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. I'm going to sit with that one for a second. Because I think a lot of us can relate, especially as we progress through through our careers, through ABA, that we did think that that was something to hold in high regard of like, oh, yeah, he only 
responds with me or she only has a good day and does her work with me or he only laughs and plays with me. But then, yeah, when you think about the full picture of like, well, you're only there two, three hours if it's in home and maybe four or five hours in clinic. And then the rest of the day, what? He's not doing anything. He's not having fun. He's not doing work. He's not. Yeah. And it, it's it's step one. I think that it's important to look at it. Then, you know, getting that stimulus control is step one. But then we need to move beyond that. And understanding that is important. And as a young uh, behavior therapist, I was just happy to be helpful. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think the second piece of that, as you learn, is definitely the generalization of the skill across environments uh, and people, but also directly training caregivers and modifying the environment so the student can be successful. And I think that's usually the missing piece across everyone and everywhere. It's like, well, it's all up to the learner. It's all up to the learner to learn the behaviors, to fit in with society. It's all up to the learner to do what they're supposed to do. It's all up to the learner. And it's like, well, no, like, number one, it's the environment back to what we were talking about before. It's the environment. If the environment doesn't change, then nothing's going to change. And if the people in that environment, the caregivers, the teachers, the siblings, the aunts, the uncles, grandparents, if they don't change, then again, the learner really isn't going to be able to change and the learner isn't going to be able to grow without giving the space to grow. Maps for that one. That Exactly. I could not have said that better. <laughs> Let's get to our palate cleanser course. So a little left turn. So right before you hopped on, you were walking your four-year-old dog, Chewy, right? Yes. Yes. So do you ever use our science with her? All the time. I think the science is always operating upon us, whether we like to know it or not. So I could teach her a lot of things and a lot of behaviors so that she could, you know, do a lot of cool, cool tricks. But my girlfriend and I have decided to teach her only functional things that work best for her and her environment. So for instance, she has buttons around the house so that she can mand or ask for things such as water, food, pet me outside and open the door because I want to go see what's going on, like the glass door to, to go on the deck. She uses them like when she has, you know, to really go to the bathroom, like really badly, we can notice it via the way that she is pacing, but she'll actually go to press outside. We let her go. And then she immediately sprints to the grass. So, I mean, you could say that, oh, she knows, but, you know, she has been, the behavior has been reinforced in the past to increase the probability that that behavior will occur to get her what she needs. So we have that. And then also, we also are able to walk with her off leash pretty much everywhere. Um, we still get a little, you know, worried, you know, when it's, you know, high traffic areas and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if she sees like a squirrel, she'll still wait until we release her to go chase them. Because we've used the science for her to be able to be around us without 
the leash and just walk with us. We don't have to say too many commands. We can have her keep the pace. We can make sure she doesn't go too far and she stays within a close enough proximity. So we've arranged uh, the environment so that she can have a freer life without, you know, the constraints that many dogs have to have because they haven't had uh, behavior scientific uh, interventions. Nice. Nice. That's a really good one. So you might have opened a can of worms in my head with the buttons. I like how you describe the buttons. But let me ask you about the people that use the buttons for like emotions or like those higher order thinking buttons. What do you think about that? For me, it's, um, you know, you have to look at what the function is and what happens with the environment when they do that. Is the human interacting with them in specific ways because they press those buttons? I mean, I really love the ones that say, I love you, because it seems really sweet and it's really awesome. But if we take a behavior scientific approach to view what the I love you is, when they press those buttons, are they getting some type of praise or treats Mm -hmm. for doing so? I mean, I don't, I mean, yeah, your dog loves you, but does press, I mean, I just, I, I don't know. And I don't know if functionally that matters as much as them just coming up to me and wanting me to love on them and me love yeah. them love on me. And just, you know, that's how I know, you know, she like my dog, literally, she sleeps on the bed and she pushes me off the bed. <laughs> She's always like, <laughs> I got like no sliver of bed. So I know <laughs> she loves me, you know, she's always excited to see me when I come home. Um, so I, I just think that we need to have a systematically conceptual understanding of what's going on when those buttons are being used, pressed, and quote-unquote reinforced. That is exactly my feelings, but better put. (laughs) I'm more like, that's (laughs) baloney! (laughs) (laughs) It it is. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll close that can. Let's get to our entrees. So I actually was asking a few friends if they had some questions for you. And so I got a couple. Madi, Dr. Madi Serta, she wanted me to ask, what were your core values and goals prior to entering your PhD program? And have you found those have shifted as you've progressed? Wow. Oh, yeah. Madi comes big. (laughs) <laughs> the doctor okay yeah <laughs> i got like shifts it's like oh um my core values i really wanted to i really wanted to learn more about precision teaching i really wanted to to expand my knowledge and understanding of how we can use this science to help but as i've learned more i've really understood how how there are so many gaps in the way that we measure that cause more like black students to be put into special education due to screening that is uh, discriminatory. And I've learned exactly how they're discriminatory and I've learned exactly how to fix that, which I'm writing a paper on now, which I feel like will be so big. It's like we have a non-discriminatory measure so that individuals can be placed into uh, special education via their um, population percentage. So 10% population in, of Black people, 10% population in special education. Right now, it's not like that. We're overrepresented. And it's like that for um, Indigenous Americans. It's like that for Alaskan uh, Alaskans. It's like that for a lot of people that aren't, you know, 
white. So I've identified this and, you know, the measure is acceleration, uh, just, you know, just so everybody knows the, uh, the measure of learning. So that's one thing that I feel like is game changing. And my big dream, I had this written down. I have three big, big, big goals that I wrote down before I entered my PhD program, which I still have. Number one is to become secretary of education and change the way we teach using behavior science and precision teaching to have students not only enjoy school more, but to learn more in the same amount of time. Number two is to um, abolish the prison industrial complex by uh, using behavior science to have individuals better interact with their environments. And number three is I've seen so many uh, people age out of services, and it really breaks my heart because once they age out of services, a lot of times... Uh, there are behavior problems. Parents don't know how to deal. They don't get to interact with their friends or they don't, they lose community. So I want to make it so that there are places all around, at least the country for people who age out of services to go to really, you know, chill with their homies to just relax and, you know, have a good time instead of being like cooped up in a house or forced to just, you know, do these things that they don't get to do because they aged out of services. So those were my values then and they still are now. I don't know if being secretary of education means what I think it means. I mean, you don't vote for it. You just become it because, you know, you're a cabinet member that's selected by the president. Um, and I don't know if they actually have any power to make any changes. But if but so I what I really want is to be able to make changes, uh, systemic changes in education uh, there. And then the abolition thing of um, our policing system and our prison industrial complex that is a whole can of worms, but behavior science can literally ameliorate the problem. So, you know, that's that's that. I hope that answers her question. <laughs> I really appreciate the question. I think so. I think so. I mean, those are some hefty, hefty goals. Uh, but also, as you're saying them, I was like, oh, yeah, Jared would be the one to do that. Like, I could definitely see that. So, uh, yeah, and there's a lot of people supporting you. So however you need help to get there, I think anyone will step up to it. We could go off on so many tangents on all three of them. We'll go with the last one about kind of like adult services, because it's true. It's like, you know, just because you turn a certain age on paper doesn't mean you still don't need the same level of support, um, especially with like these fade out plans and transition plans, they're usually done rushed, you know, because people haven't gotten all their ducks in a row. There's so many things that need to happen. And then all of a sudden it's their birthday and they're kicked out of whatever program that they might've been in. And then it's up to the families to continue some level of care. And so I know a lot of uh, parents who now they just, they can't work or they have to find some kind of remote job because they are taking care of their 28-year-old child or their 31-year-old child. And then it starts looking towards the siblings, like, okay, like you need to start stepping up and helping too, because mom and dad aren't going to be around forever. And this will be on you. Like, this is your responsibility I think it's important to have a strong family and strong family ties and responsibility. But also as a society, I think we have we have the power, we have the means to continue services through the rest of someone's life. And so why aren't we? 
I mean, it, that's the big question. Why aren't we? I, well, I guess we know the answer: capitalism, ableism. But yeah, <laughs> I was going to tell you, but you you knew it. Of course, I say I think every podcast. I'm just like, all right, capitalism, <laughs> racism, <laughs> capitalism, you know, patriarchy, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But okay, okay, let's look at it in in a capitalistic lens. You could make money, you know, like if if it has to be. I mean, that goes against my values of of Same. you know, like truly helping people. But if it has to be in a capitalistic lens there is definitely a way. So let's look at a different country. And I, by far, am not an expert or anything, but my husband's uh, mom is Korean. She lives in South Mm -hmm. Korea and they have adult day programs. Um, And so it's definitely a little more like on the edge of senior, but they are more about like, okay, they don't need daycares because it it actually just came out that. South Korea has the lowest uh, birth rate, but there's an aging population. So now uh, almost on every corner, there's adult daycares instead of children daycares. But you can see as a society, they have kind of stepped up to taking care of the adult population and the aging population. And I'm not going to say that his mom is rich, but she's comfortable. So there's obviously money in it if you wanted money in it. You know what I mean? Yep. I think you said it all perfectly. I mean, I am an anti-fan of capitalism. So I think that that needs to go and it's harming us all. But I think that um, until we begin to build a better structure for our society, we definitely need to figure out ways to support these individuals um, and and make sure that they can live a happy life and have, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness like everybody else. Okay, that was heavy, heavy entree. Let's go to a little bit easier one. What is something you wish you could have told yourself when you were just getting started? Ooh, I kind of feel like if I said anything to myself, I wouldn't be where I am today. So I needed to make the mistakes I made. But I would have I would have told myself to read more and read widely. I didn't really love reading until I got to my master's program. And even then, it still was a struggle. I mean, I was diagnosed with dyslexia. I don't necessarily think for me that that's the case, but I think that I had bad teaching in how to read, which caused problematic, you know, um, uh, decoding skills. Um, So there are so many things that I feel like, oh man, I read something. I feel like I read something, but I don't know. And I don't know where it is and I didn't save it. And just reading just opens up the world so much. And it makes sense as to why people want to uh, prevent others from reading, because it's like, oh, no, they're going to know. So we got to make sure that we, you know, ban it. It's like, you know, it's that's why it's that powerful. So I would just tell myself to read more and read widely and really, you know, um, take time to read, because I, I, I honestly believe that. Reading is a privilege, and not everybody has that privilege to have time to read. And if you do, you'll you'll be a better version of you. That's a really good point because, yeah, the the privilege of being able to 
to read in general. I mean, there's a lot of people that have difficulties reading, like you mentioned, but also maybe they had to drop out of school for one reason or another. And so their reading level didn't get as high as some, you know, some people might expect. Um, and then I've been having conversations about uh, audiobooks. A lot of people are like, audiobooks aren't reading. And I'm like, you have to fully understand how ableist that statement is on so many levels of like, you know, physical uh, disabilities, mental disabilities, accessibility. I literally would not be able to read as much as I have if not for audiobooks or not for this AI that I have that changes um research articles into audio so i do that and like i'm walking the dog and i'm listening to that i'm like oh i want to remember that so i highlight it in my phone and then like i make a note like i literally would not be able to make the content that i make as as rapidly and as, as much because i literally need it and i speed up the pace because my reading is slow phd student slow reader sorry but not it, sorry. It, it's it's the way it is so yeah exactly it's the way it is so i use what I can to help me perform and, and to learn. And it's, and even when you think about reading, like reading is so key. Like people don't understand how pervasive it is in our lives. All your memes, you got to read them, almost all of them. And then additionally, if you become literate, you cannot look at a word in your language without reading it. That's how automatic it is. Mm -hmm. It is insane and it is so powerful. So um, so audiobooks are another way to help individuals read more, read faster, and enjoy it with a lower response effort. You can also have Siri read things to you. It does take, there's a little more like response effort, but I tell student analysts this all the time. If you just highlight it and then have it speak. You can do this on the computer and on your phone. Um, that's how I got through so, mon so many like articles uh, when I was in grad school was I would just highlight a whole bunch and then have it read while I was getting ready for the day or driving or whatever. I was talking to my professor, Dr. Kabina, about this, and I was saying that access to that app, I think, is an accessibility issue. Um, to, and I think that every university should pay to have every student and every professor be able to access the app for free because it be, I, I taught a class of undergrads. And when I tell you that they didn't read, like I had to be like, yo, I just want you to read this one page, this one paragraph before we come to class. Like, I get it. Like, you're busy. Like, I'm not going to be able to get you to read all of that I want you to. But, you know, having the accessibility can change the game. Mm -hmm. That would be really go good, like, for universities to pay that, even if it was through their, like, uh, disability services that most universities have. Yeah, that would be great. Because, I mean, they have people take notes uh, for students and uh, dictate and all of that. So, yeah, why why don't they? I mean, I remember when I was in school, it was a little cuckoo bananas. I remember I had one class because my undergrad is actually in political science. Mm. And the stuff that they would want you to do, I would have to, first off, um, subscribe to the paper version of the New York Times uh, which is expensive to a 18-year-old like student. 
So there's one, like the cost of it. Uh, and then two, that they wanted me to read the entire paper every single day. And I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't read <laughs> an entire newspaper when I'm 18 years old. Like what, what do you think I'm getting up at 5 a.m. and like sipping my coffee on my veranda while I read the New York Times? Like, yeah. So I used to just go on like the website and try to like read as many free articles as I could. And then I would go to class and just hope whatever we talked about was in the free article section. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, accessibility. That is truly the, the theme of today. Mm-hmm. Okay, we should jump into our desserts before we get too full. Um, So for our first dessert, I wanted to ask, what's kind of your biggest breakthrough or happiest moment with a client? I think one of my biggest breakthroughs was I was on the, I was with a client. It was a two on one because they were so aggressive. Um, And I was able to get them to a point, uh, and then finally, my my this guy that I was working with, Javier. Shout out to Javier. He when he when he joined my team when he was with me, we were like you know we were like a power couple. <laughs> um, he, we were we were working so well together, and we got this kid to be able to. Um, he 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 had attacked um, one of the staff before, and they were so frightened from him that they would not walk like in the hallway next to them. They would see them and they would just run away. By the time I was done, we were able to get it to be a one-on-one. And that person was working with my client, providing the services that they needed with no fear. And it was so powerful because that's the moment I realized this really helps client. What I'm doing really helps clients be able to safely and happily engage with their environment, um, and 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 learn new ways of being, essentially. And and this could be so powerful even for the most, uh, the, the most extreme behaviors. And when I saw the contrast of the behavior from what they were acting like at the school when I was with them versus what they were acting like at their group home. I really, really learned. You could read a lot, but when you actually are, you know, when, you, when you're in the trenches and you're really doing the do, you you really learn. And that was like one of my first earliest like step ups of just like, wow, this is incredible. And that was that was it. Mm-hmm. Like the power of our science. Uh, to truly help. And so what I really liked from that story wasn't, oh, I really got this this client to do X, Y, and Z. It's that you were able to help him live into his like true self and values without feeling the need to aggress. Uh, a lot of times people, mostly people outside of our field, some people inside of our field that maybe shouldn't be in our field anymore, really like throw it on the kid. Like, oh, that kid is just so angry, so aggressive. That kid, like back to like, you know, blaming the learner mm-hmm. always. Um, but it's like no person would choose. I shouldn't talk in absolutes, I guess, but most <laughs> people wouldn't choose to aggress unless 
that was their only option. You know what I mean? Like if that was truly something either going on inside of them, something was hurting, something wasn't making sense, they weren't able to communicate, something along those lines, and then giving them the means to have other outlets instead of uh, aggressing on someone or on themselves or tantruming, et cetera, et cetera. Agreed. Thank you. I think that really changing the environment not only helped him, but it helped literally everybody in that school. And that's the power of, of, of our science. And I just hope that people can understand how the environment selects behavior. Clap, 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 clap. <laughs> okay. So for our last dessert, this actually comes from Meg Solomon. Uh, and I just loved it that I was like, this is going to be our last question. What are some hopes you have for the future of ABA? I hope applied behavior analysis returns to its roots in its science by measuring data with frequency instead of percent, measuring on a standard graph, such as the standard acceleration chart, actually using the standard acceleration chart so we can better identify changes in our learners. I hope that we learn from things like you know, people are always w were worried about the AMA and what they were going to say about um, behavior therapy not being as helpful for people with autism. I hope we recognize that not only is what we have able to be helpful with individuals with autism or autistic individuals, some like um, identity first language. So mm -hmm. I want to use both and respect both people. I think that people really need to understand the science of behavior works with everybody and with everything that falls under the umbrella of behavior. And the limitations are right there, you know, behavior. So that means sports, that means music, that means academic performance. It means literally everything that we do when it comes to behaving, it falls under our purview. And we can be helpful in growing or decaying behavior in anything that is behavior. So opening us up to really where we need to be as a science, you know, so that's three things. Using frequency as our measure, you know, count over time, using the standard acceleration chart to measure behavior, and then understanding that our science falls under the purview of behavior. Not only one thing, but all behavior of organisms. Snaps to that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is some great hopes for the future. So we are at our nightcap. I wanted to first ask, is there anything that I should have asked, but I didn't, or anything else that you want to mention? I don't think so. I think that you asked some great questions. This has been a lovely evening. Thank you very much for inviting <laughs> me. Um, I loved all of the courses, meals, and desserts. Uh, I think that if I could say anything, I would say have the heart to chart, uh, something that we say in precision teaching, you know, care enough about your learner to chart. That's one. Number two, the learner is always right. Not meaning that everything that they do is right or okay, but meaning mm -hmm. that what they do is because of the environment and the environmental conditions that select behavior. So don't be upset with your learner because, you know, it's the environment that's selecting the behavior. And then also understand deviations from the norm are not problematic. You need to change your definition of norm. Mm, what is normal? That's what I say, like daily. Exactly. What is normal? 
What's the operational definition of normal? Ooh, 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 that reminds me. Use pinpoint plus instead of operational definitions. Um, okay. Just because <laughs> operational definitions don't have a formula for how you construct them. Because a lot of times people just slap it together. They're not actually pinpointed. Exactly. And sometimes it's more than one behavior. So what is the pinpoint of normal? Exactly. And should there even be one? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Where can people find you? My Instagram is Jared Van underscore. And I believe my TikTok is Jared V underscore. Um, and then if you want to email me, you could email me at jared.van92 at gmail.com. Thank you for sharing a bite with us. Everyone, please go follow Jared on Instagram and TikTok. All of his links are going to be in the show notes and on my website. As always, you can find me on Instagram at rosieeatsbx or my website, rosiebx.com. If you enjoy the show, please help my dissemination efforts by leaving a rating and a review so others will find it. And until our next meal, bye.